morning's sermons from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we're so very thankful to you because you gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's even more amazing is that you poured out the Spirit upon us so that now we, your people, have you dwelling in us. What a wonderful gift. I pray, Father, this morning that you would work in our hearts and our minds and you would, by the Spirit, help us to see and know the truth. That you would strengthen our faith. You would grant us the fullness of the Spirit so that we, through our lives, would exhibit the grace and the peace generosity and the faith of one who knows you. Bless our time, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, here we are, Luke chapter 7, and this is a wonderful and incredible story. I really enjoy this story because it's, there's so much going on here. And I've always liked the story of the centurion, which was read for us this morning during the scripture reading. But as I studied this week, I really like the centurion. I came to like him even more. And it just was, as, as we're going to see, and as more and more is revealed about him and his encounter with Jesus, it is so fascinating and so encouraging on so many levels. And I also like, I think probably most importantly, I like this particular story about the centurion because it reveals to Jesus to us. And what, what truly pleases the heart of Jesus? What does Jesus delight in more than anything? Well, we're going to see that. We're going to see what delights him. And we're going to see how when Jesus perceives and sees and understands the work of the Spirit in somebody's lives, life, the kind of fruit that comes out of it. And what is the result of it? And I, my prayer is that this morning that we truly would get to know Jesus better and ourselves better and our faith forever changed. Before we begin, before we look at, dive into the passage, I want to give you a little bit of a historical context here. The centurion, we have to know who this is, because all of a sudden he pops out of nowhere. And Jesus, it says in verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings, what we just looked in chapter 6 in the sermon, in the hearing of the people, he, he went and he entered Capernaum. And now... Immediately it says, now a, a centurion had a servant. And now we don't, that's all it says, a centurion. We don't know anything about him. Here he is, shows up out of nowhere. But we have to know, there's important to know a little bit about what a, who a centurion is. And a, a, they were a Roman soldier who could have over 200 to 1,000 men, other soldiers, under them. They were very high in the military ranking and they had lots of people under their rule, and so they had a lot of power, a lot of authority. And, and because of this, they also had a lot of wealth. They were highly esteemed, highly regarded, and the only way they got to this position is because they were noted warriors. They were men who were, like, esteemed for their talents. 
According to Roman historian Vestigius, centurions had to be literate, have connections. In other words, letters of recommendation had to be given for them from higher class people. Be at least 30 years of age and had already served a few years in the military. The centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons, and for his skill in use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all the exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers. In obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. End quote. It gives you a little bit of a picture of who these centurions are. These fellas have it going on. They are warriors who are above all other warriors. And they have to be incredibly disciplined, diligent, strong. They've got to be respected and honored and esteemed. But what's more fascinating than anything is this particular centurion is of a different stripe. This, he is an amazing fella. He was, wasn't your rough and tough warrior who was interested in impressing people. He was a man impacted by the work of the Spirit. A man upon which God has shown favor. A man upon which God was at work within him doing something amazing. Of course... The text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say, here is a man upon which the Spirit was actively at work, in whom God was doing something marvelous. But all the fruit, all the arrows are pointing to that, as we'll see. The first thing I want us to see is that the work of the Spirit was producing love in this man. Producing love. This is seen in a few places throughout. It begins in verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, highly esteemed, highly regarded. So his slave, this guy had compassion on the slave, and he was highly regarded by him. Now, and actually another translation says, who was dear to him. It wasn't just that, hey, you are of great value and I need you. No, there was, there's something about his affections, affections involved here. He was dear to him, and he had compassion on him. Now, we have to understand, it says something here, he had a servant. And that just probably goes right over our heads. We don't understand the word here and, and what's the meaning going on here is that this guy was his slave. His slave. And so, it isn't that... This guy was his right-hand man or his best friend. This was a slave. This was someone who he he had either purchased or who sold himself to him because he was poor or had given himself to him for some other reason. Whatever it is, this was a person who was the centurion's property. He had absolute ownership over this person and was there to do whatever the centurion asked. 
But instead of treating him like a piece of property, he had a fondness for him. Perhaps like a good friend or a son, depending on the age difference. He could have easily been the age of his son, because as you've noted earlier, they have to be at least bare minimum to get in to be a centurion. You have to be 30. So he's probably older. He's probably been, I mean, you'd guess he's been a centurion for some time now. And there's also, they had a, a lot of really young boys who wanted to become soldiers would often give themselves to the centurion as a servant and almost sell themselves to them in order to learn, in order to be right there and to watch and to observe and to be discipled by him. So it could be that he was a, at the age of a son to this centurion. It's hard to say. But whatever the case, this slave was dear to the centurion, which shows us a little bit of the centurion's heart. Not only do we see that he loves his servant, we also see his love for God and his people. He loved the Jews. Look at verse 3 and 4. When the centurion um, heard about Jesus, he sent to him who? Interesting that he didn't go, he didn't send any of his men. He sends to them the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. This is what they said. This is what the, the, the leaders of the Jews, these are elders within the Judas community, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He is worthy for you to have you do this for him. And you know what? How did they say that? Just prior to that, it tells us how they, they didn't just say it. We were told by him to say this. How did they say it? They pleaded with Jesus. How? Earnestly. Earnestly. Earnestly, they said, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Why? Verse 5. For he loves our nation. He loves our nation. And he is the one who built our synagogue. Gives you a little window into this guy, doesn't it? Centurion loves God's people. The centurion loves the servant. The centurion is, is a different kind of a guy, isn't he? He's got, he's got love and compassion coming out of him. And why is that? Why is this happening? It's happening because God is at work in the centurion's heart. How do we know that? This man has got to be like, like Cornelius in Acts. He's a God-fearing man who loves God's people and loves everything about him. And the fact that he loves the servant the way he does, the fact that he loves God's people the way he does, it tells us a lot about him. As John says in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So what does it tell us about this centurion? That God is at work by the Spirit in his life, producing love. Love is coming out of this man, and why is that? Just, does that just ha- randomly happen to people? No, because God is at work in him. God is at work in his heart. Clearly, this man, this centurion, has been born of God. Yet what's amazing, he's Roman. He's Roman, Gentile, outside the people of God. God was at work. He obviously knew and understood who God was. God had opened his eyes and cultivated love in his heart. He had to understand the love of God. 
And from his life was coming this love. Because something else we see also, we also see that the work of the Spirit was producing something else, and there's a humility about him. He's loving towards others, and he's humble. Look at verses 6 and 7. So Jesus responds to these elders of the Jews, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Did you hear what he just said? (laughs) He has them. He doesn't even see Jesus. He has them stop. Do not come to my house. I am not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say the word. Just say the word and he'll be healed. I do not. And you know what? He didn't. He says, I don't presume to come to you. Isn't that something? I, I would not think that somehow I was able to come into your presence. I wouldn't dare for a moment that I, ha- I thought for a moment that I had stature, that I had status, that I had anything that would allow me into your presence. That's what he's saying. Wow. But this is what we have to understand. He has every reason to think highly of himself. Let's not forget, who is this guy? He's a centurion. This means he is wealthy, respected. He has a lot of authority. He has power. He is highly esteemed by others. Within society, how do you think this centurion is viewed? Whoa, this man's up there. And yet, what does he say? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come, uh, come under my roof. I, I wouldn't presume to come even meet you. That's astounding. Are you kidding me? Not worthy? Wow. If anyone had reason to be confident and think of himself as worthy, it would have been this guy. But no. He honestly believes he isn't worthy. You know, you only have this kind of humility if you have a high estimation of Jesus and a low estimation of yourself. There's no other way. He's not faking it. Just think of ourselves. I can tell you my own personal thoughts. When I look at the Bible and read the Bible, how often have you said to yourself, Man, would it ever have been great to meet Jesus, to walk with him, to be there, to listen to him. Man, I would love to have been one of those disciples. And yet, we are Gentiles outside of God's people, and it probably didn't cross my mind. I'm thinking, that wouldn't even have crossed my mind. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I would have said, please, come into my house. I would have ran out to meet him. I don't even have the humility of this guy. I don't even have the, the estimation he does of Jesus because I'm all too familiar with him. I'm all too eager to want to meet him. And what does that say? Like This guy must have really, really thought of like, Jesus must be way up there for him. Like, so far beyond him, he says, I have no, there's no way this guy could come into my house. If somebody of royalty, a very high estimation, was to come into your house, um, the, the more important that person is, the more freaked out you'd be about them being in your house. I mean, let me just, 
this might even seem crass. You know, if, if, to think of President Obama, many people, some people don't like this guy. But still, he has a very high office, doesn't he? The highest office in the land. Now, if he all of a sudden, you go to ring, he's coming to your house tomorrow, what would you do? You'd freak out, probably run around, make sure this thing was pristine. You, and I, Hey, wait a second, I thought you didn't like the guy. Well, still, he, he's the President of the United States. You know, his, his office and who he is and understanding who he is causes you to, to really see, wow, there's a gap. There's a big gap here. I'm just a lowly guy over here, and he's the president of the United States. He's going to come in my house, my house. And all of a sudden, you get this feeling, this sense of awareness of, of his office and your station in life. And that's just on a human level. We, we do, that's, what, that's how we respond. When we truly understand somebody and who they are and their office and, and, what, and where they occupy, what they occupy in life, and who we are and, and what we occupy in life. And that, if that gap is large, all of a sudden we become, we feel like we're unworthy. And yet, how many of us would never even come close to that experience as the centurion? This, this, he was a humble man. who, And that, that's not normal, folks. Most people were eager to see Jesus because they didn't get it. They didn't get who he was. And even the disciples, they were naive and foolish so often. And Jesus, this guy has something going on. It's quite astounding. And the Spirit has been at work in them. Because you remember Isaiah, the story of Isaiah? When somebody sees the glory of God, what happens to them? He has a vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord, Isaiah says, high and lifted up. What was his immediate response? Woe is me. Woe. He's looking for a cave. He's looking for a hole. He's looking, there's no escaping it, but he's in the glory of the Lord. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, how did he become so aware of that? He's seeing and looking at the holiness and all of its purity, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I'm in trouble. But the Lord was merciful to him and went and cleansed him. You know, my prayer for us as God's people, that God would be merciful and we would see him for who he really is. We truly need to have the Spirit help us in our weakness. Because if the Spirit doesn't open our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory, he doesn't open our eyes to see ourselves in comparison, there's no humility in your life. You can't fake humility. You can't go around, I'm just going to be humble. Well, no, you, you can't be. You have to have your eyes opened by the Spirit to truly see God, that He'd give a vision of Himself, and then see yourself. And that immediately will create humility, and there's no faking it. The centurion had the grace of God all over him. You can see it. This isn't just some neat, marvelous guy. This is a guy in whom the Spirit of God was at work doing mighty things and it's really amazing being a gentile and outside the people of god all that god is doing not only that not only is he humble he's a loving guy he's humble but he's generous the spirit is working generosity in him and we already looked at this verse verse five verse five says for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue well that's no small feat 
He built them their synagogue. That's a large chunk of change. This guy spent a lot of money, but it's even more profound than this. He builds a place that he himself wouldn't be able to enter into. He's a Roman Gentile. It'd be like us going to build a private club, exclusive private club that we're excluded from. I don't even get to go in and enjoy it. But I so love God and his people. I'm so, I just so want to give to them that he, that he builds them this place. And they were even amazed by it. He said, hey, and even, he built our synagogue for us. He's quite, this guy, he's quite the guy. And so it's just it's remarkable what God is doing in him. There's no selfish motive in him at all. There's a man who is generous because he obviously saw all that he had was from God. He, only, you can't be generous like this unless you just see you're overwhelmed by the generosity of God. God's generosity hits you, you see it, and you become generous. Because you just feel like you've got a dump truck on your head of God's blessings. So he wants to use his money to promote the good and glory of God and the good and glory of his people. And really um, didn't have a lot of personal benefit. There were benefits to it. He could hear the word of God and learn from it and have rabbis right close and everything else. But it's just, it's incredible generosity. And this generosity always marks the people of God. It marks the people of God because God works generosity in their hearts. They see God's generosity. Just like love. Why do we love? Because God first loved us. And when God's love overwhelms you, it breaks you. Love comes out of you. Same thing with generosity. You're only going to be generous when you see the generous grace of God on you. If you're tight-fisted and you have a difficult time, you have a difficult time understanding how much has been given to you. If you, I worked dang hard for this stuff. I've got all this stuff because I earned it, and I went after it, and I, you know, I've been busting it, and I've been doing this. And If you have that mentality, you will not be generous. Because you don't see it as grace. You don't see it as God being overwhelmingly generous. You see it as your own hard work and effort, and that's what got you what you have. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, we hear about the church in Macedonia. And we see what the Spirit does and works, and how He works in the hearts of His people to make them generous. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Do you hear that? The grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty... Hear that? Their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. They put together, out of their poverty and out of their affliction, everything, they said they eagerly, eagerly implored them with their gift. Take it. Why? It says in the, in the very first verse, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. What was bestowed on them? The grace of God, the abundant, unmerited favor and goodness of God upon them. 
they saw everything they had was from God. And that He bestowed so much on them. And this made them generous. People who are generous understand how generous their God is. People who are stingy think their God is stingy. That's the way it always works. When the Spirit is at work in our hearts producing this kind of generosity, it's because we're seeing and understanding the generosity of God. We're responders. And we who've been given much, we typically bless much because we can't believe we've been given so much unless we think, this is mine and I earned it. And of course, this is not natural, is it? This isn't natural. Are people naturally giving and generous? No. We're naturally stingy and selfish. If I had a truckload of money, what's what's the first thing I start thinking about? All the stuff I could do with it. Have you ever played the game? What would you do if you had a billion dollars? And where do you go immediately? Immediately, oh man, I would... I would get that home I always wanted. And uh, th- just listen to how many eyes are in there. I, I, you know, how was it? Man, it would be so incredible what, what we could do to help and serve and give and bless. I would just be so pumped about all that we could do. You know, typically, it's the flesh that longs and wants to get. But it's the spirit that longs and wants to give. And so when the Spirit's operative and at work in our hearts and, and helping us to understand and know the goodness and grace of God bestowed upon us, we become these generous people who are eager to give. So not only was he generous, not only was he humble, not only is he loving, but there's something that causes Jesus to marvel here. And this is what I want to close with and uh, help us to see this is really what, what really causes Jesus to take two steps backwards. And it was how the Spirit had worked faith in this guy's heart. Look at verses 9 and 10. For he, just prior to that, he tells Jesus, he, he says, but say the word. Jesus doesn't have his house yet, and he just says, say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he says, I get how authority works. If I say go to one of my servants, he goes. If I say come, he comes. So just say the word. I know that you have authority, and by your word it will happen. And then in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Do you realize this is the only place that Jesus marveled at someone? So here's Jesus walking along. He hears this report, and he's like, okay, i got to turn around for a second and address. So there's a crowd following him, and he's, he, you almost see him. Did I just hear what I heard? Wow. Did you guys hear that? Did you hear that? In all of Israel, I have not found such faith as in this man. That means his disciples... And everybody who's following him, he has not seen this kind of faith. What's he always saying about his disciples? Oh, you of little faith. This man, he's like, wow. Wow. 
And the only reason he would have said this is because he sees the work of God in him. And the only reason this centurion would have this kind of faith is because by the Spirit there was a work in his heart and in his life. And he was revealing this to him. And how do we know that? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. And this... Uh, sorry, and for, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The gift of faith. Jesus is seeing in a centurion the wonderful work of God by the Spirit in a man who's cultivated faith and he believes. Because here's the thing. This is the gift of God because we will not believe or trust God unless we are convinced that He is all that He's promised to be. That He is all good and all powerful. As humans, we're not prone to trust unless we first are convinced. We, we don't trust things unless we're convinced of them, unless there's a sense in which there's a reason to be convinced. This man trusted. He was obviously convinced. The Spirit had opened his eyes to see what God was doing, and he believed, yes, that's the work of God. God is good. God is powerful. God is trustworthy. And he was convinced. It must have been that when the centurion heard about the work of God, did in Israel, he's around these people, he had to have heard what God had done for his people. I'm sure he heard the story of the exile from Egypt several times. And as he heard it, and as he heard about God delivering his people in the Passover and through the plagues from Egypt, and when he heard about God splitting the sea for his people and triumphing over his enemies and crushing his enemies, when he heard about God feeding his people from heaven and giving them water from the rock, that centurion must have heard and believed. I thought, wow, your God is good and your God is powerful. I had to have been absolutely convinced of this God. As Hebrews 11 says, faith is the conviction of things unseen and the assurance of things hoped for. He also would have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. That this Jesus who he's hearing about, he must have heard enough about this anticipated Messiah and who he was, and the Spirit must have given him eyes to see that one is coming, and this is just like him, and this, is, this fulfills everything I heard those rabbis telling me about and when he, they were talking about Isaiah and the promised coming Messiah and all that he was going to do. This sure sounds like him. This has got to be him. I, I'm convinced it's him. The Spirit was opening his eyes to see who God was, who He was, what God was like in His promises and, and all that was going to be, uh, to be done. And he, lusted, he had to truly have laid hold of them. There's no other reason why He would have done it. And you know what? This kind of faith that marvels Jesus, Jesus it, the Scriptures also say, apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. This is why Jesus is excited to trust God, to trust Jesus, to believe. That's what God requires of us. Just believe, hold fast to me. And it's the believing that God delights in. It's important to understand that unless we believe our God loves us, is concerned for us, and is more than powerful to save us, we will live more by fear than we will by faith. Do you realize that in your life, 
your faith will be in proportion to your belief of who God is and what He's like. Because if you think if you think God is just all yeah you think He's loving and you think yeah He's great and all that, but you doubt His power, you can't trust Him. But if you on the other hand if you if you don't doubt His power, He's all powerful. He's power for everything. He does whatever He wants. But you really doubt His love, you can't trust Him. What causes doubt in us is either a doubt of His love or a doubt of His power over everything. If you are convinced of His love, that God absolutely loves you, He's given His Son for you, He, he loves you with an unending and un, unmeasurable love, and His power is past finding out everything, every atom in the world is under His control, and nothing happens apart from His will. If those two things are understood and believed, they will produce in you a, the kind of faith that you see in the centurion. But wherever you doubt or wonder or question, you will find yourself exposed. When the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it isn't that you can just, I've read my Bible 30 times and my faith should be increased. No, what the Bible is doing is revealing to you the goodness and the love of God and the power and the greatness of God. This God who you're supposed to, you know, as you see and as you understand and as you believe, lay hold of, that cultivates faith. So if you want to have the faith of the centurion, you've got to cultivate an understanding of who God is. And that's not going to happen apart from the Spirit. You need to earnestly plead with the Spirit that the Spirit would open your eyes to see the love and the goodness of God and the power and the greatness of God and that you would lay hold of that. So that no matter what happens in your life or what comes, you trust Him, you look to Him, you believe and you say, I don't know how, but He will. Do you notice even the centurion, he didn't know how Jesus was going was to heal his servant? He didn't know what he's going to do. Just say the word. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to all work out, but I just know it will. And you don't even have to show up in my house. We have a hard time believing and trusting God. Because we are often... We look with eyes of flesh. And this is what this means. What, what do you see in the world around you? Everything we see is physical. It's visual. And we, we go by what we see. We respond to what we see. But when believing God is not based on the visual, it's just on a promise. It's something we don't see. So if God tells us he will provide food for us and leads us into a desert, we struggle to believe. Why? Because we know that we normally get our food from Costco. Right? Oh, okay. Somewhere else. A grocery store. However, if God wanted to produce food and drop it down on us from heaven, it would happen, wouldn't it? In fact, this is what he did for his people. I mean, you know physically, you know with certainty, don't you? That water does not come from a rock. How many people here would say water comes from a rock? Good, nobody. (laughs) It doesn't come from a rock. But with God, all things are possible. So with God, do you think water can come out of a rock? Absolutely. It can. But we have a hard time with that, don't we? Of course, because normally and usually this isn't how it works. 
And so we look with, not with eyes of faith, but we look with eyes of flesh. And we see with our eyes and we make judgments. Not based on the promises of God, but based on our circumstances and situations. Here's the problem, though. We can't live like that because that's not faith. We have to, uh, this is what we like. We like to have our fridges and cupboards full. Believe it's from God and give him thanks for it. That's what we like, right? That's a nice security. Keep my fridge full, O oh God, and those cupboards bound and uh, those overflowing, and I will give you thanks. Praise the Lord. My cupboard's full. We don't like our fridge and cupboards empty with the bald promise of God before us and then to wait for his provision. You like that situation? You got nothing but the promise of God. All right, honey, fridge is empty, cupboard's empty, top ramen's gone, nothing left. Excited? No. That's all we have, but we have the promise. We have a God. We serve the God of heaven and earth who can cause top ramen to fall from the sky. He can do whatever. But if you... If, if, God, if your God is not incredibly good, loving, and has you at the center of his affection in the sense of, I love you, you're dear to me, and that he's not all-powerful who can do that in a drop of a hat, if, that's not, if you're not convinced of that, to the degree to which you're convinced of that is the degree to which you will either trust him or won't. Because faith lays hold of God when there is nothing else to lay hold of. And believes that he will in some way, and I don't even know, he will deliver. I loved hearing this week about the story about the Tisdales getting their house. Because I remember telling Linda in the back, says, you know, I can see that they're not here. I don't know how God will do it, but he'll do it. I don't. And that's how we, we need to talk to one another that way, because we'll find ourselves in situations... I don't know how. I don't know. I can't, I can't assure you that, okay, step one, God will do this. Step two, he'll... I don't know. One thing I'll tell you, he will. He will. He, he's good. He will provide. And as we believe that, we become more and more... We believe that like that, we become more and more like the centurion. That's the kind of faith he had. He knew God was good. He knew God was powerful. Look at the way he put his trust in Jesus. He'd never met him before. So if you want to have faith, like the centurion, if you want to have love, if you want to have generosity, if you want to have the humility of the centurion, then you need to earnestly pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to see God. That you would see his love. You would see his his compassion you would see his generosity. You would see his humility. You would see who he is, and you would see yourself. Because if the Spirit helps you to see him and all of his greatness and all of his promises, and you see yourself, you know what's going to spring out? Faith, hope, love, generosity, and humility. That'll be the fruit. So may God grant us the eyes to see that we might be like this century. Amen. Father,
You know our hearts. You know where we're at. You know our faith. You know the size of it. You know if it's infantile and small. And you know that we, we just can't just gin it up. Like, oh, I'm just going to believe. That's what I'm going to do. Father, I ask and I, I pray that all of us here, we would truly have eyes to see, that we would see you in your glory, in your power. We would see your love and your goodness, that we'd see it all around us. And we'd just be, you would compel us. You would, by your spirit, work in us to, to believe that we would have faith like this centurion. That we would have his love and his humility and his generosity. That this same fruit would come out of our lives. Because of the work you're doing in us. Father, have your way with us. Work in us. That we would believe. Believe you and have absolute confidence in you. Father. You're good, and we thank you for it. Amen.